everybody. How are you? Come make yourselves comfy on this Sunday night. It was a beautiful, beautiful day here in Auckland. Was it nice where you mm. are, Peter? Yeah, really beautiful sunny day. 22, 20, 22 degrees. Nice. Yeah. One of those lovely early summer days, strawberries and mm. all that. Hey, everybody. Lovely to see you. Give us a hi in the chat. I'm curious to know if you've been before. So if you haven't, say you're here for the first time or something like that. Because uh, it's always interesting. We're growing so fast right now. And um, over a thousand a day, I'm told, on, on, onto our, uh, that's capturing onto our email list so we can talk to you all and get in touch with you. So we're really growing very quickly. Um, our local group, I understand, uh, is at 25, our local groups, the number of members in our local groups has hit 25,000 already. We, we're expecting it um, shortly, but we've got there, I think, today or tomorrow. It's due to hit or something. It's like we're just, we're just, we're so close. I think we're there. Um, anyway, it's really good. Hi from Mangani. First time here. Excellent. Hi, everybody. Yay. We're so glad so many people are holding the line as well. Um, it's really been a difficult, particularly difficult couple of weeks. I know it's been difficult for the last year, nearly two years. But this last, you know, things have really cranked up a notch in October. And it's been a really hard time uh, in the last couple of weeks for so many people. So hold the line these crazy changes that happened over the weekend with the government um, retracting the exemption uh, for the mandates was just, well, you know, are we surprised? <laughs> We're not surprised. It's just crazy. Um, yeah. Anyway, we will get there. I do think we'll get there. I feel quite, um, it's tiring, isn't it? But, it, but it's, I think we're going to get there. I still feel optimistic that I feel like people are waking up. It is like a roller coaster, Gina. Um, I do feel like people are waking up. There is a mood change out there. I'm feeling it. Do you think so, Peter? Or is it just me? I don't think it's just me. I, I think so. I, I, I mean, from what people say, I guess I don't really get out a lot, I suppose. And yeah, you have your I'm, I'm finger on the pulse, maybe, you know, you're, you're, you kind of know, you, you know, from the people that are joining, you know, from the comments you yeah. get, um, mm. and friends mm. and friends and all of that to tell you what's. Mm, mm. it's just a, many people they've, they've kind of turned on to the uh to the you know to this very wonderful drug called the bff you know <laughs> <laughs> well we hope so they have they're finding us it's great yeah, it's just yeah. something there's something mood is changing there's stories coming out from various places that are making people sit up and think what you mean what so um yeah i think so it's hard though for some people because some of people will just dig in harder but we will get there. Okay, we're, um, Claire just tells me that the email went late, out late. So I'll just give people a couple of minutes to join. The government ignoring the data. I know, government ignoring data. It's crazy. What cohort group? I don't know what you mean, critical thinker. So you have to ask me that again. Excellent. So if you're not already in a local Voices for Freedom group, now is the time. It never has there been a time like now. So go and join. You can just head over to the website. Um, someone's put a link in the chat there. But head, head over to the website and just go across the top. I think it's Take Action. Join a local group. You can find one near you. If there isn't one near you, then um, oh, I'm in the control group. That's my T-shirt. Maybe that's what they're saying. Uh, if there isn't a group near you, it might be because they're waiting for you because our groups are exploding 
and um, we need more coordinators in li just little areas where there are gaps. And some of the very big groups, I know that uh, one small place uh, just told us the other day that exploded, they got over a thousand members in their groups. So it's kind of gets time for these groups to start breaking into little pieces. So um, if you are heading over and you have got a, a, the, the drive to help uh, and do something in your community, then please uh, step up would be just so grateful for your help. Okay, everybody, we're going to get started. Oh, I've got Peter's um, blurb I need to read, Peter. Let me just go and find it for you so I can say hi. You all know Peter. If you've been before, you'll know Peter. Um, but I will introduce him properly anyway. Here we go, I'll do it in a second. Send in details for Hawke's Bay local group and haven't heard back. Give it about two weeks, um, Michael, because uh, there is just a little delay as that comes in on the form and then it gets put into the right place and then you will be contacted. There are a lot of people at the moment who are joining. So um, if you haven't heard and it's been two weeks, just email or just try again and, and um, you'll get in, the, get in the right place. And definitely check your spam junk folder for our emails. Exactly. They often go to jam or uh, jam spam or junk. Okie doke, let's get started. Um, we have fabulous Dr. Peter Kennedy with us again tonight. He's here every second Sunday uh, to come to talk to us about the latest science that's out. And we end, always end, as you will see, with a really interesting look back at history. And that's one of my favorite things in the week, actually, just to reflect on where we've been before and what we can learn from it. So um, Peter completed his medical, he completed medical school in Massachusetts in 1976, completing training as a general medical specialist at the University of Michigan, specialist training in respiratory and intensive care at the University of North Carolina, and practiced his specialty in Colorado for 12 years. He changed career and completed training as a radiologist, a radiologist at the University of Wisconsin in 1997. After an eight-year appointment as an assistant professor of radiology at Crichton University Medical School in Nebraska, he spent time in community radiology practices before settling in New Zealand in 2013 as a DHB consultant radiologist, and he's just recently retired. So welcome, Peter. It's lovely to have you with us again this Sunday night. I'm going to um, hand over to you with your slideshow and um, enjoy everybody. Enjoy it. And we'll be back for some questions shortly. So take it away. Here we go. All right. Uh, see now we're going to share the screen. You should be seeing that there. Let me get this enlarged here. And we should be able to get on our way here. All right. So this is uh, the sixth of the series here. Um, and we've been looking at some of the issues that appear to be current every two weeks or so, uh, and a review of some things that we've already known that have been updated. So hopefully that'll be what we do again tonight. So can you all hear me uh, well enough here on, the, on this so that I'm not speaking too softly? Uh, again, just as always, I do have to state that these are my own opinions, my own views. They are not the conclusions of Voices for Freedom or the Ministry of Health or any other organization. And nothing in this presentation is intended to diagnose, advise how to diagnose, treat, or cure COVID-19 or any other disease discussed herein. Now, we hear lots about misinformation, and that's being put forth, in fact, by the media and the other critics. 
Uh, and as often is the case, if you find that if they would be looking in the mirror instead of looking at us, they would see something that's a little bit more conclusive. But that being what it is, neither Voices of Freedom nor myself wish to promote any anti-vaxxer sentiment. We attempt to provide information, opinions, reference where I can that appear missing in the current one-sided offerings from the official sources. And I have in fact prescribed vaccines likely hundreds during my career as respiratory and critical care medicine in the US and do acknowledge their benefit when individualized decisions weighing the risks and benefits can prevail. That's always where the decision ought to be made is at the uh, interface between the individual, the subject, the patient, and their physician or healthcare provider. So here's just a series of what I've uh, done up to date. If you want to take a screenshot of this, if you're interested, those are the previous topics and dates, all starting off with this original uh, exposition of uh, that got it, this whole thing started back in June. And this uh, item here that's in re record is, is in the recordings on Odyssey is from 19 of August. So what's new? Uh, I think we all would like to know whether we've been told the truth when we said, oh, well, don't worry about the vaccine. It's not going to fiddle with your DNA. It's not going to change it. Well, I think we're going to have to reconsider that because this article just published uh, last month uh, from Sweden in uh, Viruses Journal. I did look at, in fact, what are the effects of the full-length spike protein and it's this full length spike protein, which is used in the Pfizer vaccine where the mRNA uh, enters the cells, turns on our ribosomes and turns out spike proteins, which then uh, leave the cells. Uh, as it turns out, they're not just sitting on the um, <clears throat> outer edges of the cells, but they leave and get into the bloodstream and get into our other cells as well. But once they get into our cells, it turns out that these findings are now showing that the, the spike proteins indeed can enter the nucleus. So the RNA doesn't enter the nucleus, but the spike proteins do. And what happens there is that they turn out to inhibit the underlying DNA damage repair mechanisms, which all of our cells have. Because DNA breaks down uh, oftentimes, and it is uh, influenced by a lot of other external um, agents, as we'll see in a moment. So there's always ongoing DNA damage and repair. And so our cells are set up with the capacity to damage those DNA strands. And it turned out that the spike proteins, in fact, are suppressing the proteins that are necessary for DNA repair by as much as 90% compared to controls uh, that are uh, compared against. So it comp compromises, especially these double-stranded DNA breaks. As you know, <clears throat> it is a double-stranded uh, uh, item. And single strands are easier to repair because you've got a template to sort of make up the other side of it. But once you double-strand break, you're in a bit more of a trouble. But there's specific mechanisms to do that. And those are what are actually challenged uh, by the spike protein. We know that this adaptive immunity uh, is compromised in SARS-CoV-2. We know that there's a depression of the immune system that occurs, a general immune system that occurs at least immediately after the vaccination. And then until the specific um, B-cell, B-cells uh, are created, um, 
there is uh, still a suppression of, of adaptive immunity. Now there's a potential mechanism because <clears throat> these repair pathways are necessary in order for the B cells to express their antibodies. And if their DNA within those B cell lymphocytes has been compromised and has not been repaired, then those B cells are not gonna make the antibodies or they're not going to make them as effectively. And the same thing goes for these T cells, which are necessary for our immune response. And that can lead to immunodeficiency if you do not have a intact repair system within the cells. So these mutations, these deletions, insertions of incorrect code, the mixing and matching of all this, this goes on anyway, it naturally occurs. Um, and it is exacerbated by this exposure to various toxic items the radiation externally from uh, medical procedures or from uh, high altitude flights and so on, toxic environmental chemicals, personal care products, which actually contain some of these toxic materials that can injure our DNA. And we need to have a functioning DNA repair mechanism to keep these in check. And usually we do, and usually we keep up with that if we're in state of good health. But what happens when you do compromise the repair of DNA? Well, cancers are by definition DNA gone wild, not repaired, having insertions where, of uh, genetic material where they shouldn't, and then reproducing uh, and having a loss of the control of that reproduction of those cells, which is how cancers form. You get cells that just won't stop dividing, and that can happen when your DNA is damaged. So that's a potential consequence if we have compromised the DNA repair. The same for immunodeficiency, which we've just uh, uh, touched on. And in fact, uh, there's some early evidence that maybe over time, we may be seeing some syndromes which resemble HIV AIDS in individuals that have been vaccinated. Autoimmune disorders, accelerated aging, we have these telomeres, these are the parts of the end of the chromosomes that kind of get lopped off more and more over time. And they are said to be related to uh, the aging process and can have some functional uh, influence on the cells. That can be accelerated because you're not repairing the DNA uh, strands to the same degree. And when you have cells in any of the organs, if they are not able to, uh, to reproduce, to, re to uh, repair, to be replaced, then you can have potentially organ dysfunction, of course, reproductive deficiency, because uh, the, our, um, our gamete producing cells, those cells that produce the eggs and the sperm, they depend on cell division, and that depends on an intact DNA replication mechanism, an intact ability to uh, reproduce the DNA, and that can be challenged as well. So we do now know the following, that the spike protein we know has the ability to continue to be produced in the body. It doesn't get turned off like we were told. Uh, and this may well be the explanation or at least a partial explanation for these long COVID symptoms, which turn out to be really quite similar to the post-vaccination effects. And since the COVID, long COVID, it's perhaps related to, uh, well, we know it's many of the symptoms are related to spike protein and the vaccine effects likewise. This is really not a surprise. Now, the spike protein in circulation may also bind to these ACE2 receptors. We've talked about that's how it works. That's how the virus uh, gets into the cells. The spikes bind to these ACE2 receptors on our cells, and that allows them to enter the cells. 
But sometimes the spike proteins don't fully function. And so you get them stuck to the uh, ACE2 receptors and they don't go inside, they don't go away, they don't get released. So you've got this complex of the cell and the spike protein together. And to the immune system, that's not a normal cell. I mean, it would be if the spike protein would just go off on its own and get released, but it isn't anymore if they're bound together as a complex. And that means the immune system recognizes it as something that's foreign. And that is the setup for this autoimmune disease where you're making an immune response to your own cells, which have been recognized as being not quite right. We also know, of course, now from this study that the spike proteins can indeed enter the cell nuclei and inhibit DNA damage repair. And we also can expect that the full expression of this may take some years after vaccinations. Now, interestingly, for those in the details, there's another part of the uh, spike protein complex called the receptor binding domain that didn't do this in their experiments. These didn't do it to anywhere near the same degree. And so that may actually have uh, some potential for uh, vaccine development using uh, that as the target uh, for uh, within the spike protein, not the entire full length spike protein like the Pfizer vaccine is using. So that's interesting. We'll see what comes with that over time. So what about Pfizer? What have they been up to? Well, here's, here's what they've been up to in the United States in regard to the news media. So I'll let this speak for itself. Meanwhile, I'm sure the editorial impartiality of American news networks remains completely unaffected by this. It's brought to you by Pfizer. CBS HealthWatch, sponsored by Pfizer. Anderson Cooper 360, brought to you by Pfizer. ABC News Nightline, brought to you by Pfizer. Making a difference. Brought to you by Pfizer. CNN Tonight, brought to you by Pfizer. Early start. Brought to you by Pfizer. Friday night on Aaron Burnett out front. Brought to you by Pfizer. This week with George Stephanopoulos is brought to you by Pfizer. This weather report brought to you by Pfizer. Today's countdown to the royal wedding is brought to you by Pfizer. And now a CBS Sports Update brought to you by Pfizer. Meet the press. Data download. Brought to you by Pfizer. This portion of CBS This Morning sponsored by Pfizer on how to find the hidden sugars in the American family diet. Sponsored by Pfizer. Really likes you think. Meanwhile, I'm sure. Meanwhile, we'll, we'll have to see if that's gonna continue, but that really tells us something about the uh, potential objectivity of the American media. Well, now here, what about Pfizer? There's been a whistleblower case, as it turns out. This was actually just published in the British Medical Journal, which is one of the most prestigious of the world's medical journals. And a whistleblower who had been a regional director of this company called Ventavia uh, has actually sent a lot of her uh, internal documents, photos, recordings, and emails during her uh, time there at this research firm uh, to the British Medical Journal to confirm what she has been alleging. So. The way that the clinical trials work is that Pfizer has maybe 150 different sites around the world where they're doing these trials of their vaccines and the production. And uh, they, they're during the, the, the clinical trial phase, they have to have certain firms that actually know how to do pharmaceutical research. So they actually 
are involved in, the, uh, in that phase of the development. But what she found and alleged and actually had proof for was that there was quite a bit of falsified data. The patients were unblinded, meaning that you're supposed to have those patients in a placebo group, those patients in a vaccine group, and you're not supposed to be mixed up and you're not supposed to know who's who. But if you unblind them because the charts are left open or other things like that, then you don't really have a legitimate study if it happens often enough. They hadn't trained a number of their vaccinators. The product wasn't stored at the proper temperature. And we all know how important that is because it has to be stored in these very specialized freezers at 80 degrees below. Mislabeled laboratory specimens, uh, poor laboratory management, uh, patient safety concerns, things like this, then slow to follow up on adverse events. And of course, that's the issue. We're seeing a lot of adverse events. Even an executive was overheard on uh, communication to say they're not able to quantify the various types and number of these errors. Uh, Stafford was counseled for changing the data and not noting a late entry. Um, and a statement was made in a rather cavalier fashion. Well, FDA rarely does anything other than inspect the paperwork, usually months after trial has ended. And you know, that was, that was, these are all obviously regularities. Jackson, the person who made these complaints was fired on the day that she emailed her complaints to the FDA. And then a bit later, back in, uh, later in uh, uh, November and December, they had okayed the emergency use of the Pfizer vaccine one day after the application without any mention of any of these problems that were happening at Ventavia research firm, and they were doing oh, a good 15 to 20% of the actual clinical trials for Pfizer for this product. Even later on, they had discovered that these clinical trial sites were re required to be inspected. Well, only nine of them had been inspected. So let's have a look at what the report actually showed and said about that on this uh, TV report here. Now, the British Medical Journal has published a whistleblower report claiming there were serious flaws in Pfizer's COVID vaccine trials last year. The researcher behind the claims says that she was fired the same day she raised her concerns and says too that the US authorities are refusing to investigate. With more, here's Igor Zhudanov. So all these revelations, they have been published at the British Medical Journal, a very respected science paper, not some tabloid that has a history or, well, is known for publishing some unvetted information. And so that article, it details the allegations of a whistleblower of a woman who used to be part, used to be with a contractor with a company called Ventavia. So what does this Ventavia firm has to, anything to do with the Pfizer and its vaccine, you might ask? So uh, it all goes back to the third phase of clinical trials of the vaccine. Some might argue that it's the most important phase. So Pfizer, to do the, these trials, it hired a number of firms and a number of contractors. And so these contractor companies, they were responsible for the, for the trials. In total, Pfizer's vaccine was tested on more than 40,000 subjects. In fact, the number is closer to 44,000. And this 
Tavia firm was responsible to conducting trials on about a thousand of people. And so this whistleblower, uh, she claims that she has observed some negligence, some, uh, well, some violations during those trials. For example, according to the allegations, participants were placed in a hallway after the receiving the jab. So instead of getting proper medical attention, they were somewhere in the hallway. On top of that, she's accused Ventavia of a lack of timely follow-up on patients who showed some severe symptoms, which could be interpreted as, well, side effects of the vaccine. Uh, they're using the word, uh, the British Medical Journal is using the word adverse events uh, in relation to these symptoms, to these, well, potential side effects. Also, protocol deviations were not being reported according to the allegations. The vaccines were apparently not stored at proper temperatures, and this is crucial for, for the Pfizer vaccine because, well, uh, it has to be stored at a very particular temperature, a very low temperature, and this is something that makes the transportation of this vaccine particularly challenging. Also, uh, the whistleblower reported mislabeled laboratory specimens, and apparently Ventavia targeted those members of staff who, well, tried to blow the whistle and tried to bring to light these uh, these discrepancies, uh, these instances. And uh, the whistleblower is saying that she was victim of uh, such targeting, that she was fired uh, after she tried to bring to light these allegations. So when, according to her, the company, uh, when these allegations fell on deaf ears uh, within the company, she uh, assembled them, she put them together and sent them all to the FDA the U.S. agency, a governmental body responsible for giving the approval for the emergency use of a vaccine. And this is the response she got. Have a listen. Within hours, Jackson received an email from the FDA thanking her for her concerns and notifying her that the FDA could not comment on any investigation that might result. A few days later, Jackson received a call from an FDA inspector to discuss her report, but was told that no further information could be provided. She heard nothing further in relation to her report. Well, given what we've just heard, it could have been, well, seen as an optimistic sign for this whistleblower, you know, company, the, or rather the FDA getting back to her the very same day. And obviously she comes across as a very concerned person. And on top of that, all of this happened in September last year which is important because that's before the Pfizer's vaccine got the approval of the FDA. So, well, so the only logical assumption there could be is that the FDA will look into these claims, address them, and will make a decision whether or not they were important. Uh, but uh, in December, same year, the Pfizer vaccine got, uh, got the, well, it, it was recognized, it was recommended for emergency use by the FDA, and the FDA did not address any of the allegations. Have a listen to, uh, to a part from the article in the British Medical Journal. In Pfizer's briefing document submitted to an FDA advisory committee meeting held on the 10th of December 2020 to discuss Pfizer's application for emergency use authorization of its COVID-19 vaccine, the company made no mention of problems at the Ventavia site. The next day, the FDA issued the authorization of the vaccine. We have, of course, reached out to Pfizer, Ventavia, uh, the FDA, of course, to, well, to find out their opinion on this as to maybe why they believe that these claims should be, should, they shouldn't be taken into account, that they're unimportant. But we're still to hear back from them, uh, from them and, uh, well, I guess the only, uh, the only logical outtake from this story would be listen to your doctor before, well, you know, putting anything in your body. 
Now, we spoke to Reading University microbiologist Dr Simon Clark about this, and he is concerned that the allegations there could lower the public's trust in the vaccine. The biggest problem or potential problem with, with uh, uh, this article in the British Medical Journal is that it would affect or could affect public confidence in the vaccines when really it shouldn't. Mistakes do happen, um, but it's important to, to, uh, to acknowledge that when you know a mistake has happened, you report it, you acknowledge it uh, and uh, deal with it. This could happen with any medicine, not just a vaccine. People should remember that many, many millions of people around the world have had this vaccine and it's effective and it's safe. So that's it. It's effective and it's safe, and we shouldn't be questioning it. Well, there's another reason you might want to do so as we listen to this litany of how Pfizer interacts with governments and with other uh, companies throughout the world. And this is a report from uh, India that actually looked at the very uh, issues around the world with various governments. Talking about common good. Wuhan virus vaccines are supposed to be a global public good. But what happens when a vaccine manufacturer starts bullying? Governments are silenced, supplies are halted, and profits take precedence over saving lives. I'm not describing a hypothetical situation here. I am describing what Pfizer is doing. The American pharma giant, it is doing all of this. It is bullying countries to submit to its demands. We first reported about this back in February this year. While countries like India are sending free vaccines to poorer nations, there are companies like Pfizer which are bullying governments. Pfizer asked to be compensated for the cost of any future lawsuits. Pfizer wanted Argentina to put, and listen to this, put its bank reserves, its military bases and its embassy buildings at stake as collateral. These are Pfizer's demands. Look at this. Number one, Brazil waives the sovereignty of its assets abroad in favor of Pfizer. That the rules of the land be not applied on Pfizer. Number three, that Brazil take into consideration a delay in delivery. Number four, that Pfizer is not penalized for it, for a delay in delivery. And number five, in case of any side effects, Pfizer be exempted from all civil liability. Eight months have passed since we reported this. Pfizer has not changed. It is still putting profits above public health. It is still forcing governments to bend to its will. An advocacy group has thrown up more details of what Pfizer does. It has accessed some confidential contracts of Pfizer. And we have a copy. These contracts are with nine countries and blocks. And the details are shocking. Desperate countries are being forced to make humiliating concessions to Pfizer. We went through the entire report. We found six very important points worth highlighting. Number one, Pfizer has the right to silence governments. It has forced countries to not talk about the deals they strike for shots. Number two, Pfizer controls the donations of its shots, not the country that buys them. Pfizer will decide where the shots go. Number three, Pfizer has secured an intellectual property waiver for itself. And this clause is particularly disturbing. If Pfizer is accused of intellectual property theft, governments will pay, not the company. Number four, if there are disputes, private arbitrators and not public courts will decide on them. Number five, Pfizer can go after state assets to secure its compensation. And number six, Pfizer calls the shots on all key decisions. 
It decides delivery timelines and more. These are very serious revelations. I'll give you some more details. Number one, Pfizer is silencing governments. How? Through contracts. These airtight contracts are at the center of everything. They can silence governments in ways you can't even imagine. Look at what happened in Brazil. Pfizer agreed to supply its Wuhan virus vaccines to Brazil. And it sneaked in this clause in the agreement to force Brazil to not share any specifics about its deal with Pfizer. Let me read it out for you. This is what it says. The Brazilian government is prohibited from making any public announcement concerning the existence, subject matter or terms of the agreement or commenting on its relationship with Pfizer without the prior written consent of the company. In other words, Brazil cannot talk about the Pfizer deal until it gets an approval from Pfizer in writing. This basically is a private company muzzling a government. And that's not all. Pfizer also gets to decide who will get the shot. Suppose someone wants to donate Pfizer shots to Brazil. Can they do it? They cannot. The Pfizer agreement restricts Brazil from accepting donations. No one can donate Pfizer vaccines to this country. They cannot use the Pfizer shot until they buy it. What happens if Brazil does not comply with these rules? The consequences will be serious. Let me quote from the report again. If Brazil were to accept donated doses without Pfizer's permission, it would be considered an uncurable material breach of their agreement, allowing Pfizer to immediately terminate the agreement. Upon termination, Brazil would be required to pay the full price for any remaining contracted doses. So Brazil will have to cough up the entire payment and Pfizer won't even have to supply the full consignment of Wuhan virus shots. What happens if someone accuses Pfizer of stealing its vaccine technology, of intellectual property theft? The government will be forced to defend Pfizer. It's unbelievable. We had to read this twice to let it sink in. And guess what? At least four countries have been forced to protect Pfizer's patent. Meaning these governments are defending Pfizer for intellectual property theft. While the company is free to use anyone's intellectual property as it pleases. Colombia is one of these victims. I'll explain with an example. Suppose a domestic vaccine maker or any pharma company in Colombia goes to court and they accuse Pfizer of infringing their vaccine patent. Who will be the one fighting that case? Not Pfizer. Even though they're, they're, the, they're the accused party, it's not Pfizer and their lawyers who will be in court. It will be the Colombian government. The government will have to defend Pfizer. And if they lose the case, it will be the Colombian government that will have to pay the settlement, not Pfizer. What if these governments want to get out of these tough contracts? They won't be able to sue Pfizer at home. The matter will go to a secret panel of three private arbitrators in New York. Pfizer will be tried as per New York law and not the laws of the land where it sells vaccines. And these countries will pay heavily if they lose an arbitration. Pfizer can ask a government to shift control of state assets to compensate for losses. What kind of assets are we talking about here? Practically anything that a sovereign government owns. Foreign bank accounts, foreign investments, commercial property, state-owned airlines, even oil companies. Pfizer can take over any or all of these from a government. Basically everything happens on Pfizer terms once a country decides to buy its vaccine.
Even the delivery of shots is decided by the company. In Brazil, in Albania, in Colombia, Pfizer gets to decide the delivery timetable for vaccines and the countries will have to agree to whatever they are given, whenever they are given. Pfizer, of course, gets to decide the price. It sets the delivery timelines. It accepts accountability for nothing. And in case someone sues the company, it's the government that foots the bill for the damages, not Pfizer. There is no other way to describe Pfizer's business practices. This is vaccine terrorism. Vaccine terrorism, it is. That's what it sounds like. Now let's look at the efficacy again. And we've been through this before in regard to the actual trials that we had data from. Uh, these cases, again, uh, going back in the latter part of last year, uh, they defined cases as a positive PCR test and one or more symptoms. They didn't actually isolate the virus, measure the antibody response. They may have had some research uh, studies that were cellular response. It didn't appear in the at least the most uh, prominent uh, journals uh, that were um, done during the trials. Well, they gave us this 95% figure, and where does that come from? Now, of those 44,000 cases almost, they had 168 cases in the unvaxxed and eight in the fully vaxxed, and that means there's 168 uh, that were, uh, that, that were uh, in the comparison here, and out of 176, that's where they got their 95% efficacy, that's the relative risk reduction. But if you look at the absolute risk reduction, they had 168 unvaccinated folks in this total group of 21,728 and eight out of another 21,000 or so. And so that's what the actual number was of people who got a COVID case according to this definition, 0.77% versus 0.04%, really a 0.73% reduction in risk. And that's what's called the absolute risk. And that's the fact is that most people during this period of time were never going to get COVID in the first place. And if they did, uh, they would have a modest improvement uh, in absolute terms uh, if they had been vaccinated instead. So let's look at the real world here. And a recent study has come out that will tell us about that. This is from The Lancet, which again is one of the top uh, two or three journals, medical journals in the world that looked at this very question of the community transmission and the viral load, which is how much virus lives in the upper airways that is capable of being potentially spread to other people. And so they looked at this in the vaccinated and the unvaccinated people in the period of time when Delta was predominant uh, using this uh, Pfizer vaccine here and doing the comparison in the UK. This was a prospective uh, study what was interesting here is that they really uh, did a good job of following multiple days of testing to really find out when people got infected, how much viral load there was, um, and uh, <clears throat> how that changed over time and so on. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But what they were doing is they were looking at the secondary attack rate. In other words, <clears throat> if you take people that you know had COVID and you look at those in their household, and you then found out how many of those people that were exposed really got COVID as well, again, by this definition, uh, then you're looking at uh, two different uh, pathways here. One is you're measuring how many of those who were exposed to either unvaxxed or vaxxed contacts, how many of those had the 
uh, COVID transmitted to them. In other words, how many received and tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 in that household. And indeed, we know that there's been some discussion about protection from infection by the vaccine. And that's what was shown in this study, although it was not nearly as impressive a difference as you might've expected. In other words, the vaccinated people when that household exposed to those who had COVID had a 25% likelihood of actually developing that themselves. And this is actually a bit higher than it had been in the days before the Delta. There was quite a smaller percentage of those who had got COVID from someone in their household, but now it's a bit larger. And indeed, the unvaxxed had about a 38% likelihood of developing the COVID in that household. But it's not a really impressive difference. It's about a uh, two thirds, roughly, uh, of those, uh, uh, of, of the incidents. 25 over 38, it's about two thirds. Then on the other hand, if you look at the context, uh, how many of them were actually guilty of transmitting the disease to others? Okay, these are the people that had COVID-19 to start with, had exposure with the SARS-CoV-2, and they were either, they had COVID, but they were unvaxxed, or they had COVID and they were already vaccinated. What's the chance of transmitting that to those people in the household. And it turned out to be not a whole lot different. In fact, there wasn't any significant difference here uh, between the unvaxxed and the vaxxed who had COVID and how much they were going to transmit it. So these breakthrough cases turn out to very efficiently transmit the infection just as if they had never been vaccinated at all. And this is a very key point because as we'll get to in a moment, we've been told that this just doesn't happen. Now we have a very high quality study that demonstrates that it does. They were sampling the PCR tests, which again, we've had issues with what that really means, but that's not what we'll talk about now. But looking at PCR sampling daily, regardless of whether they had symptoms or not. And so they're doing lots of testing and they're also going to pick up some of those who had so-called asymptomatic uh, COVID-19, or at least presence of the SARS-CoV-2, according to the PCR. And as you can imagine, if you're testing it every day and you're testing based on no symptoms at all, that you're going to be more sensitive in picking up uh, positive tests than if you just do one single point of time and if you do it based on somebody that's symptomatic. And so that's where they got that somewhat higher number than they had found before, that 25% that in the vaccinated folks. And they found that it was indeed um, higher for the household context uh, than they had expected. So they're seeing now lesser vaccine effectiveness uh, because now, in fact, they're picking up some of this asymptomatic spread, which is not prevented by the vaccine. They have increased susceptibility to infection now after only two or three months. And the reason that is happening is that the vaccine efficacy has been waning. And in fact, it's waning a bit more so than prior estimates had been. And again, part of that may relate to the fact that you're now able to pick up these asymptomatic uh, individuals. Uh, and that's contributing to this waning immunity because that's gonna pick up uh, more quickly. They also looked at how much virus lives in the upper airways because that's where we transmit this virus from, of course. There was surprisingly 
no difference in the peak viral load and those who'd been vaccinated and those who'd been unvaccinated. So they had just as much virus loading in their nose and in their um, upper airways, whether you're vaxxed or not. Uh, they did notice that the higher peak viral load was present with older age. And we know that that is a cofactor for more severe COVID in the first place. It's also usually an indicator that immunity is not quite as strong as it had been in the younger age groups. However, even though they showed a somewhat faster decline in this viral load in the vaccinated people, there was actually more difference between individuals in one group, in either group, than there was between the average of either group. So in other words, there's more variation uh, within the group of unvaccinated people and how fast the virus was cleared uh, than there was between one group and the other. And that really suggests that some people really have excellent host factors. There may be some viral factors too. Some people really had very, very good immune systems and they cleared virus even faster than some people that might've been vaccinated. So once again, what does that tell us? That our state of health is going to be a very important factor in whether we pick up uh, the virus, whether we have disease with it, whether we have symptoms with it. And these factors undoubtedly are going to contribute to the transmission independent of whether we're vaxxed or unvaxxed. And we do need to look at that too, because these hosted viral factors have not been really studied to the degree that they should be. They also found in the cycle thresholds didn't change, didn't differ between the vaxxed and the unvaxxed, although this was a single point in time that they looked at this. Other studies have shown a somewhat faster viral decline in the vaxxed, but they didn't show that in this study, which again was generally speaking, very well done and well compared one group to another. Now they did have some unvaxxed participants a bit younger than the vaccinated ones. And of course that could possibly make a difference in the immune status, but it didn't seem to show up in the results. They didn't do viral cultures. Um, they were looking at viral load as a estimate based on the cycle thresholds. Um, other studies have shown that uh, those uh, uh, do occur at two thirds or so in the vaxxed cases versus the unvaxxed. So what can we conclude really with the Delta predominant transmission rates the household context are the same for the vaxxed versus the unvaxxed. The vaxxed developed the positive PCRs at two thirds the rate of the unvaxxed. Peak viral load does not differ between the vaxxed and the unvaxxed. And indeed there's more variation in the viral load between individuals than there is between groups of vaxxed or unvaxxed. So while crystal protection from COVID-19 by vaccination is mild, the data do not support vaccination as a means of preventing transmission in the household contexts, which are where most of the spread is going to take place. So with that said, what's the government response going to be? So you basically see it, this is gonna be like, well, it's almost like uh, you probably don't see it like this, the two different classes of people, if you're vaccinated or if you're unvaccinated, you have all these rights. If you are vaccinated... That is what it is, so yep. Yeah. Two different classes of people. If you're vaccinated or if you're unvaccinated, you have all these rights. If you are vaccinated, that is what it is. So, yep. Yeah. Encouraging. That's a question I'm not going to be able to answer. In fact, I'm not sure they'll be able to answer either. But let's uh, 
open this floor here for some questions on the themes we've talked about or anything else that people would like to bring up. Pass that back to you, Libby. Okay, here I am. Should we put us on screen? Excellent. Um, okay, there were quite a few questions, which I thought were really interesting. Um, great. Um, someone said something right just then before we stopped, actually, and it's so true. It is such a shame that this isn't all discussed more broadly for New Zealand to hear that these are such important things, and I wish the media would pick up on it, and I wish we could have a proper discussion around the science. It is, it is such a shame. Um, okay, Derek. Uh, is the DNA repair that you spoke out, spoke about earlier, is that also mm. compromised within the disease itself? Like the my, I was thinking about the myocarditis too, because that is obviously yeah. seen, but it's different. So that's my other question: Is it seen, and if so, is it different to what we see with the vaccines? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, what the article did talk about how the um, mechanisms of of toxicity in the in the cells is is using a different it's a different mechanism for the actual viral disease as compared to the spike protein itself because the virus has other means of interfering with uh, reproduction uh, and and DNA report mostly related to oxidative stress and and uh, nitrox I think it's nitroxide nitrogen oxide stress and so on um, so this mechanism seems to be different this seemed to be something that relates really to the spike protein itself, wherever it comes from. Um, but the virus may, may um, the problem, problem is that they're, they're taking an artificial part of the virus to make the vaccine. And they're mm -hmm. taking the full length of the, um, of, of the spike protein itself. There was some discussion that actually, if they were going to use only the receptor binding domain, which is only a part of that spike protein complex, that they didn't they didn't find the same problems with the DNA repair mechanisms. Um, but the receptor binding domain as a target for vaccine development didn't get a lot of traction early on. But now there's more attention being paid to that, perhaps because, and there will be or should be, because of this DNA mechanism to try to get it to where you know maybe it's not going to be quite so dangerous. But you know, for all those folks that have been vaccinated. You know, it's it's an unfortunate situation. We don't know what's going to happen, but we do need to try to optimize our health to uh, to try to get around any of these long term effects as best we can. Mm. And when you say optimize your health, do you mean before you have a vaccine, if you indeed end up having one, or after? Because is there any well, way to do this stuff? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, yeah, that's a whole other story. Really, is is uh, treatment if you've had the vaccine, and I, it's an intense questioning right now. I mean, we. We know that many of the things that we recommend for the COVID disease itself is, is going to be, we're assuming going to be helpful, the vitamin C, vitamin D, the mm -hmm. ivermectin, again, this is not medical advice, but you know, vitamin C, vitamin D, the um, uh, quercetin, which is a, also helps the zinc get into the cells. When you can't get ivermectin, the quercetin is a very good way of doing that. I mean, these are all things that can help our innate immune system and to optimize the immune system that we do have mm. um, and offset perhaps some of these these kinds of problems mm. and, and i would assume then that starting early and prior would be better absolutely yeah yeah i mean if you have to get jabbed just you've got to be really toked up with lots of vitamin d much more than 
you know, the 1,000 unit amounts that you get in the single tablets here in New Zealand. I mean, you know, mm. some five, six, seven times that. Again, not medical advice, but that's what other people are talking about doing and using. Um, so I'm just going to report that that's what is in the literature about that. Uh, mm. Vitamin C uh, in pretty high doses and zinc, especially. Uh, these are all the zinc by itself. Once it gets into the cells, can um, it can kill off the viruses as they as they're trying to reproduce inside of our cells. Uh, and the same may be true for the uh, its effect on the spike protein. But yeah, it's a whole other area that's sort of takes another bit of attention to really sure. talk about. And particularly if we're looking at a situation which may may not occur for everybody, but we don't know, we're not really sure of the spikes of, of that instruction not turning off. So you've got yeah. this constant pro problem that's been perpetuated. Mm, it's a tricky yeah. one. Okay, uh, someone suggested that there may be different concentrations being administered. They'd heard something about different concentrations and even saline placebos being administered. It, yeah. I have to say, it crosses everybody's mind, I think. When you look at the proliferation of injuries more recently, we have had a lot more people vaccinated, though, in the recent months. But do you have any, yeah. have you heard anything about that? Would you know anything? Is there any, there must be rumors, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been actually just a study I was reading today that suggested that um, when a very deep dive was looking was done to look at some of this various data, uh, some investigative journalists, and there still are some out there, um, looked at that data and tried to correlate that with the lot number for the various vaccines are used. And what they found is that a large percentage of the injuries could be traced to a very small number of lots of the vaccine as though they themselves had been either contaminated or poor productivity or you know poor production uh, uh, integrity or, or what was going on with them but uh, that is sort of obviously very problematic the bears system which is used to report these adverse events in the us uh, were saying that um it's you know hard to get this data it's almost like it's made so that you can't trace it <laughs> But there was some software item that they used to try to go through the data, and that's what they came up with. And that's yeah, that's from National News and Mike Adams. Was yeah, someone else actually raised that exact thing. It was the UK. It was a UK analysis of the VAERS data, and and what the person said was that a hundred percent of the deaths were attributed to five percent of the cases. Now, uh, lots. I don't know if those numbers are is is actually what they found but you would think yeah. that an oia an official information act request to our government asking them if they were tracking lot numbers for, against injury that are coming into mm -hmm. car, that would be an interesting thing to know i wonder if the, i mean are they <laughs> well that's it i mean i i have not i have not been to a vax center and so i don't know what the procedure is, but I mean, I suspect it's quite different if you're going to one of these drive-through, you know, vaccination events, you know, the traveling, uh, uh, you know, vans in the middle of Stratford uh, the other day that showing, oh, come on, get your vaccine with the loudspeaker on and all this stuff. I mean, you know, what what kind of integrity of the data preservation is there going to be? No. Uh, I mean, it, it takes a lot of detail and it takes a certain degree of training to really know, well, okay, what really is the lot number here? What am I doing? What else am I supposed to be reporting? And I'm not sure, you know, if all those who are the quote vaccinators are up to that. They may be, they may be, but I, 
they might be, but it would be good to ask, I think, because it would be good to something to highlight if it were, if they then came back and said, oh, we have no information on this or we're not doing it or whatever, because but, um, they should be looking. They really should be looking to see. I think it's, it's, it's even, yeah, I mean, I think what we could even do is, is have a call out to anybody that has gone through the vaccination process. They can just sort of give us like a little interview. What was it like? You know, get three or four people that can tell us uh, mm -hmm. what the process was like so that we can ourselves get a little bit of a information from the you know, mm. first person basis people that have been there. Mm. It would be good to know. I mean, we know historically looking back at the vaccine history through the states that there were definitely, it was a big problem with hot lots. They called them hot lots. And a decision yep. was made to break up the hot lots so that they wouldn't yep. encounter that again. So they were then yes. disseminated throughout the states rather than landing all in one spot. I mean, this is a known yes. thing. So, I, yes. you know, they're onto these ideas of these hot lots. It just depends where the lots turn up. But it's a good question to ask, I think. Um, well, if this, I were going to go get a vaccination myself or somebody, I would advise them to ask for and require you know, require that you have them tell you what the lot number is on mm, on mm. The, the vial mm. and how long has it been, what's the, you know, how much storage, what's the storage uh, history on it? Mm. Did they take mm. it out of the freezer? Uh, you know, these sorts of things, which, you mm. know, at least for individuals, we can kind of figure that out. Yeah, and they didn't used to record hot not lot numbers in New Zealand years ago. I know there was a change and they did begin to record lot numbers. And uh, it was some time ago because I was speaking to someone who was instrumental in making that happen where just childhood vaccines, they would then start, a move was made to start recording lot numbers. So they know and they should be doing that. Um, so yeah, I think it's a good I saw one of the One of the folks in the chat had indicated mm -hmm. that they're recording the lot number on the vaccination card. Okay, well, that would be good to... Yeah, they must know. They must know. It'd just be good to. Yeah. They should be able to tell us if they're seeing a link. That that's my point. Yes. They should be looking yes. themselves. The other thing that was a question here was whether you should aspirate or, or ask them to aspirate as the injection is being given. That comes out of the, the method, you know, from Dr. John Campbell that I think I highlighted last week. Is that in the myocarditis cases, at least uh, there was some concern that there was actually an intravenous a blood injection. Uh, of the vaccine product that could have been associated with uh, the, the myocarditis events because they had shown it in the animals. And uh, definitely there should be, you know, aspiration before you inject just to make sure that there's no, that's, that's standard like mm. nursing mm. Mm. Uh, medical thing. You're supposed to know that when you take your first yeah. clinicals, but yeah. yeah you I spoke would, about that last that. time mm, with the aspiration. Yeah. Okay. Um, when, so someone asked, when do you think these cancers are going to start appearing if we're likely to see them? Well, you know, there was that, uh, that commentary from Dr. Ryan Cole from his own, he has a private laboratory, a pathologic laboratory in Idaho, who was saying he's already seen them in the um, endometrial cancers and the, uh, that he's that's come through his laboratory since the vaccinations, you know, 20 time increase or something. And so um, mm -hmm. I, I think it, it's gonna be, it's gonna show up in probably within a year or, or two, mm -hmm. you begin to see some of that on the early phases of people that, They've had, you know, their cancers under control, and 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 now you come back with that. You know, it's just really criminal that these sorts of things are not taken into account with respect to medical exemptions. A lot more medical exemptions that should have should be allowed than just saying, well, anaphylaxis, meaning this this kind of 
overwhelming and sudden fall in blood pressure and loss of ability to breathe, all that. I mean, it's just not enough of a condition alone to be the sole reason not to you know, be vaccinated, but that's, that's where we are. Yeah. What do you think, you know how we had the study that we've talked about for ages, where we found that the lipids were um, accumulating in the ovaries and the testes, but also the, bo the bone, the bone marrow. I assume that will then translate into some sort of leukemia or what would, would that be likely? I mean, does that make it oh, yeah. potentially? Yeah, where, wherever the spike protein can be found, and it goes back to the very um, DNA study we just talked about, really, is that whenever there's going to be a loss of a capacity to repair the ordinary DNA breaks and, and uh, damage that occurs anyway, uh, that wherever that's located, there can be the potential for runaway cell division and therefore cancers of various types. I mean, cancer of the bone marrow is a leukemia. Um, mm. And so it's, it's going to happen there. Mm. That's how it will be termed. Yeah. Mm. I, had, I have one last question, but someone just popped one up that was interesting, to, uh, I thought. If you have something like a broken leg or some other injury that, and you are vaccinated at that time, would this DNA problem inhibit repair of that as well? Is they, those things connected? Interesting question. I um, don't know. And I don't know what the extent is. I mean, you know, these are, these are laboratory studies. They're done by, you know, uh, by laboratory scientists, I, I don't know what the how extensive the clinical expression of that's going to be. You have a you have a theoretical observed phenomenon, which is going to be translated into some clinical expression. Right. right okay. Bench research, and then I mean, I, I, I don't know that I could answer. That. I mean, there may no. be so many other factors that that this alone is not enough to you know cause that problem. Out. And I imagine that depending on where this is being found within the body, it will have significant effects. Or not, yeah. you know, yeah. in terms of repair. Where, wherever the spike proteins are, and the ones that have been manufactured, which is all four of the major vaccine manufacturers now. I mean, the two mRNA vaccines, the, the Pfizer, the Moderna, and then the two um, adenovirus vector DNA vaccines, they all produce, you know, they all are, are made to produce spike proteins in our bodies. Mm. And they're all going to have that same potential. Mm -hmm. Okay, the last question is, um, there's a lot of questions in the chat, <laughs> obviously, you know, there's 2,200 uh, yeah. people on here, so it's, it's going, you know, there's quite a few, but I thought this was just an interesting point to cover, because we're hearing that doctors, doctors and dentists are now being treated to a webinar next week to discuss whether or not they should be able to see vaccinated, what refuse to see vaccinated, unvaccinated patients, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but Someone said that they listened to an iMac webinar recently with Nikki Turner and Jess Barantino Shaw. Actually, sorry, I didn't catch the second name of that woman properly. Um, she, they said, don't get into a fact off. A fact off is the phrase they use. Don't get into that with the patient. You want to talk about values instead. And the person has asked, like, would this be a normal thing that doctors would say? Would you be discouraged from discussing science with your doctor? Uh, would they try and steer you towards a values discussion normally, or is this just a COVID thing? Normally, I mean, that's not an issue. I mean, you have all sorts of people with, what shall we call them, uh, diseases of which they didn't just occur spontaneously, but they have through their own lifestyle or dietary or various habits or whatever, they've contributed to their own 
diseases. I mean, you know, alcohol, smoking, whatever. Those are the most obvious, you know, mm. things that, uh, you know, obesity, which is partly related to that, but, you know, has some genetic element too. But, you know, there are all sorts of individuals that make decisions, you know, and we don't refuse them. We don't refuse them. No. And I don't, I'm, you know, it's just, it's just, it's ludicrous to even think to bring this up. You, you know, you can't do that as an ethical physician. You can't, you, you can't do that. No. But, and would you try and steer a conversation a certain way with somebody though? Would you say, oh, I'm not here to talk about the science with you because we're just going to talk about your values around. No, 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 no. I mean, you have to talk with about everything that is relevant to the patient who's in the process of having to make a decision that reflects a recommendation or a commentary that you make. You, 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 you've done your examination, you've done your, your history, you've made an assessment, you think this is what you suggest. You have to do that as an interactive process with the patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's time to remind them who's boss, I think, when you go and see them. Well, yeah, I mean, to have the Ministry of Health now be in charge of these medical exemptions is absurd. I mean, look, yeah, it's absurd. When has a bureaucrat ever been involved in your in your doctor-patient relationship, for goodness sake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the problem is, you know, we hear that, you know, doctor, you know, I'm not going to say his name, but a certain doctor who's, you know, in charge of this Minions. whole affair. Yeah, as I understand it, I mean, yeah, he has a medical degree, but he's not actually been a practicing physician for any length of time. I mean, like seeing actual patients. Know you. He doesn't know you, and he's not going to ring everybody and just have a little powwow about your health, is he? It's, the whole thing's absolutely ludicrous. We need to just stand up and say, absolutely no freaking way. This is crazy. Well, that's, that's yeah, that's what happens when public health people attempt to practice medicine, which otherwise would be illegal. They can make pronouncements, you know, and all of that, recommendations, recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. That should be absolutely. it. That's the end of it. It's ridiculous. Okay, there's a couple of things. We'll go back to the um, history side of things in the slides. I just wanted to quickly say to people, quite a few people were asking employment questions. Do go to the website. Everything is kind of all that everything's been thrown up in the air and we're dealing with a new situation when it comes to the exemptions now. Um, so go to the website, Voices for Freedom forward slash resources and check out things there there's new stuff that's going up um things have been changed around i don't know how much it's finished just yet but we've been trying to work hard to get all the new stuff ready if you missed the webinar on wednesday on friday night with um dr sophie uh the employment webinar i'm pretty sure it's up now on our odyssey channel and you can reach that by going to voices for freedom and clicking watch and then finding the webinar, um, there's a Phil um, and Claire and Dr. Sophie. So watch that. That will give you a really good overview of what the changes were around the exemptions. And there's some good ideas in there for you, some good uh, sort of other options that have, that have come to light or that you might want to think about. So do that. If you have questions outside of the mandates, the stuff and resources is still relevant. Um, someone was asking, Peter, what the delay is now, and I don't know if you'll know with um, NZDSOS managing exemptions, and I know everything will have changed uh, given that the um, mandated exemptions have changed, but for people that aren't mandated, that system, is that still, I assume it's still going for people to be able to contact a doctor and talk through their situation with them? Well, yeah, I mean, we just had a discussion about that, of course, with a change as of like midnight tonight. Um, yeah. Exemptions are no longer valid. They had gone through and, and 
given a number of exemptions to those who are in these, you know, the threatened classes of mm. individuals of the the teachers and the, you know, the order workers and so on. Mm. Um, and and now those are going to be overturned. You know, it's like yeah, those ones. So they, they kind of concluded that this was really important to make a point and to and to get it out there as to um, you know the number of individuals that are affected. Mm. What's really coming up and and is particularly worth developing is the whole question of uh, the Health and Safety Act because the Health and Safety Act has not been overridden and cannot be overridden by anything passed by government. And the Health and Safety Act has provisions for um, extreme psychologic stress, which uh, affect the capacity to work and are Im uh, imposed upon an individual at his workplace by unfair practices. And those represent um, things which can be complained about specifically and reports can be made daily as to those things which are of an urgent nature. Mm. Uh, and then you effectively uh, flood the system appropriately, I might add. You flood the system with complaints that have to do with health and safety matters. Mm. If you want to know more about health and safety, have a little look. Um, Charles, the health and safety expert, spoke to us last Tuesday. So I think part of what he said has been turned into a smaller clip. So go and have a look, and that's all fleshed out in there around the health and safety um, and as it relates to your job or could relate to your job. So have a little look. There is a lot of information there. Please don't feel despondent. There are things that everybody can do. So just go and find that out. Somebody, a couple of people, a lot of people actually, were asking about this global control group. Um, Sophie mentioned it in the webinar on Friday night and it's vaxcontrolgroup.com. So it, it, look, it, it's legit in that it's it's not a, it's not, mean <laughs> it's not some sort of nasty thing whether whether it will work i don't know but it's it's there so um vaxcontrolgroup.com is what she was speaking to and you can go and have a little look there and decide whether or not that sounds like something you'd like to do oh she was on last night okay i'm all the days i'm getting so confused about the days okay it was Saturday night, not Sunday night. Ooh. Okay. You, you have a lot going on. You have a lot of seminars. Too many things. And a lot of too things, many like things I didn't tell you. And I haven't yeah. even planted my Kumra. They all arrived. My husband's saying, those things are going to die. I'm like, I know, but I haven't got time to get them in the garden. You do it. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, Peter, let's go back to your, um, your, history, your history bit, because it's going to be good tonight, I think. All right. All right. Well, just a... Uh... Another look at that here. I think are we, um, yeah, all right. So we're gonna be on um, that uh, right here. And then we're gonna take another look at that from the current slide. So again, just to update, um, I have these responses that are on the NZDSOS website based upon this uh, 4th September News Hub article, hit pieces. And this is the debunking that they said that they claimed that they did. They said I made 25 claims that they claimed to have been debunked, which I do not agree with. And that's been the basis for my various responses. And NZDSOS has a dedicated section to this rebuttal on letters and press. And the first eight of these extended responses have now been ready. The most recent one published last Thursday or Friday, that on the absolute and relative risk that we've been talking about, which I hope will put that matter to bed indefinitely, at least for those who wish to look at this in some detail. This is where it's located. And so that's where it's going to be. 
So in the preface to tonight's discussion about Soviet history, let's talk a little bit about our dear leader here. And I'll run this clip here, which is from a New Zealand commentator that was just made just a while ago. So finally, uh, from Ian, oh boy, wake up New Zealand before it's too late. Remember Khrushchev's prediction? This is a sobering reminder. It's almost 62 years since Russia's Khrushchev delivered this. Many of you may not remember his quote or even were alive when Mr. Khrushchev of the Soviet Union made his remarks. On September 29, 1959, here was his entire quote. Your children's children will live under communism. You Americans are so gullible. No, you won't accept communism outright, but we'll keep feeding you small doses of socialism until you finally wake up and find you already, you already have communism. We will not have to fight you. We will so weaken your economy until you will fall like overripe fruit into our hands. The democracy will cease to exist when you take away from those who are willing to work and give to those who would not. Ian goes on. Remember, socialism leads to communism. How do you create a socialist state? There are nine levels of control. Read the following recipe. One, healthcare. Control healthcare and you control the people. Two, poverty. Increasing the poverty level as high as possible. Poor people are easier to control and will not fight back if you're providing everything for them. Three, debt. Increase the debt to an unsustainable level. That way you're able to increase taxes and this will produce more poverty. Or gun control. Remove the ability to defend themselves from the government. That way you're able to create a police state. Number five is welfare. Take control of every aspect, food, housing, income of their lives because that will make them fully dependent on the government. Education. Take control of what people read and listen to and take control of what children learn in school. Religion. Remove the belief in God from the government of schools because the people need to believe in only the government knowing what's best for the people. Class warfare. Divide the people into wealthy and the poor. Eliminate the middle class. This will cause more discontent and will be easier to tax the wealthy with the support of the poor. And number nine, control the media. Not much left for our comrade Jacinda to do. As I read through each point, I realized while I was reading just how far we have followed that road. It really is quite devastating. I leave it with you. That's where we are. Um, consciousness, raising awareness, that's where we need to be. There is still hope and there's still a way for us to, uh, to rescue ourselves. We have to be aware. Our comrade has actually learned from the best uh, because even if we go back now 37 years uh, to the, uh, the statements and the advice that was made by Yuri Vesmanov, uh, this is where he was talking about over that period of time, 37 years ago. So Yuri Bezmanov was a high-placed uh, KGB propaganda agent. Um, and uh, he eventually became uh, dismayed with the Soviet system and defected first to Canada in 1970 and then to the United States after that. His job was what's called ideological subversion by the Soviet Union. It was the long view that they were taking as to how to subdue an enemy. Because 
having a war and all that war was going to be too expensive, too destructive, and it wasn't going to be really able to accomplish their goals. They thought that they would do things in a much more subtle way and yet a more effective way, and that is by subversion. And they did that, and because they took advantage of the open society that we had in the United States and that the Western countries had as well, certainly in New Zealand at the time. Uh, and uh, that's, that's what they did because you have these rights to free speech and all of that, and they were taking advantage of that for people that would otherwise make uh, remarks that would not be tolerated in a, a closed society or a totalitarian society. But these were acceptable in our liberal democracies. And interestingly enough, it turned out that only 15% of what the KGB was doing was the espionage. And so all, this, all these Russian spy stories and all of that it really wasn't a lot of what they were doing. It's much, much of it was this ideological subversion. So he described these four stages of demoralization, destabilization, crisis, and then this cynical term called normalization, which he attributed to uh, Premier Brezhnev in the 1980s. Mr. Bezmianov was born in 1939 in a suburb of Moscow. He was the son of a high-ranking Soviet army officer. He was educated in the elite schools inside the Soviet Union and became an expert in Indian culture and Indian languages. He had an outstanding career with Novosti, which was the, and still is, I should say, the press arm or the press agency of the Soviet Union. It turns out that this is also a front for the KGB. He escaped to the West in 1970 after becoming totally disgusted with the Soviet system, and he did this at great risk to his life. He certainly is one of the world's outstanding experts on the subject of Soviet propaganda and disinformation and active measures. Well, you spoke several times before about ideological subversion. That is a phrase that uh, I'm afraid some Americans don't fully understand. When uh, the Soviets use the phrase ideological subversion, what do they mean by it? Ideological subversion is, is the slow process which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, in the language of, of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing uh, process which goes very slow and it's divided in, in four basic stages. Uh, the first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students in the country of, of, of your enemy, exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or counterbalanced by the basic values of Americanism, American patriotism. The demoralization process in the United States is basically completed already. Uh, for the last 25 years, actually it's overfulfilled because uh, demoralization now reaches such areas where previously not even Comrade Andropov and, and all his experts would 
would even dream of such a tremendous success. Most of it is done by Americans to Americans, thanks to lack of moral standards. As I mentioned before, uh, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who was demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Uh, even if I shower him with information, with, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures, even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him concentration camp, he will refuse to believe it until he, he is going to receive a kick in, the, in his fat bottom. When a military boot crashes his balls, then he will understand, but not before that. That's the tragic of the situation of demoralization. The next stage is destabilization. This time, subverter does not care about your ideas and the patterns of your consumption. Whether you eat junk food and get fat and flabby, it doesn't matter anymore. This time, and it takes only from two to five years to destabilize a nation, uh, it's, what, what matters is essentials, economy, foreign relations, defense systems. Uh, and you can see it quite clearly that in some areas, uh, in such sensitive areas as, as uh, defense and economy, uh, the uh, influence of Marxist-Leninist ideas in the United States is absolutely fantastic. I, I could never believe it 14 years ago when I landed uh, in this part of the world that the process will go that fast. Uh, the next stage, of course, is crisis. It, it, it may take only up to six weeks to, to bring a country to the verge of crisis. You can see it in, in Central America now. And after crisis, with a violent change of, of power, structure, and economy, you have so-called the period of normalization. It may last indefinitely. Normalization is a cynical expression borrowed from Soviet propaganda. When the Soviet tanks moved into Czechoslovakia in 68, Comrade Brezhnev said, now the situation in brotherly Czechoslovakia is normalized. This is what will happen in the United States if you allow all these schmucks to bring the country to crisis, to promise people all kind of goodies and the paradise on earth, uh, to, to destabilize your uh, economy, to eliminate the principle of free market competition, and to put a big brother government in Washington, D.C., with the benevolent dictators like Walter Mondale, who will promise lots of things, never mind whether the promises are fulfillable or not. Your leftists in the United States, all these professors and all these beautiful civil rights defenders, they are instrumental in the process of the, of the uh, uh, subversion only to destabilize the nation. When their job is completed, they are, non, they are not needed anymore. They know too much. Some of them, when, when they get disillusioned, when they see that Marxist-Lenin has come to power, the, obviously they get offended. They think that they will come to power. That will never happen, of course. They will be lined up against the wall and shot. But they may turn into the most bitter enemies of Marxist-Leninists when they come to power. And that's what happened in Nicaragua. You remember most of these uh, former Marxist-Leninists were either put to prison or one of them split and now he's working against Sandinistas. It happened in, in uh, uh, Grenada when Maurice Bishop was, he was already a Marxist. He was executed by, by a new Marxist who was more Marxist than this Marxist. Same happened in Afghanistan when uh, first there was Taraki, he was killed by Amin, then Amin was killed by Babrak Karman with the help of KGB. Same happened in, in Bangladesh when Mujibur Rahman, very pro-Soviet leftist, was assassinated by his own 
Marxist-Leninist military comrades. It's the same pattern everywhere. The, the time bomb is ticking. So the first step here is where one or two generations of students are uh, taught by teachers who either influenced by, paid by, or sympathetic to various Marxist-Leninist ideas. And of course, you can attract uh, people with the grand ideal of all being equal and everyone having uh, all of the uh, things that they need and uh, to each according to his needs and from each according to their abilities and so on, all of that, which is so uh, wonderful in, uh, in, in the ideal world. Aided by the media, manipulation of public opinion, which they paid for and, and were actually able to subtly infiltrate. And I have personal communication with someone who actually knew that that's what was happening back in the 1950s and 60s. He told me that that's what they were doing. He kind of knew that based on his contacts with uh, this, the um, intelligence agencies. But it happens in the open. It seems to be a legitimate process. It seems to be part of the kind of expression of all ideas and this sort of thing. And actually what it turned out to do is to break down traditional values of uh, family and hard work and you know, being accountable and responsible and all these things. Um, because uh, these things were gradually changed through the, through the movies and the Hollywood and, and, uh, uh, and so on. Um, it turned out that these so-called grassroots organizations often turned out to be infiltrated by the change agents. We saw that in the, uh, in the ecological movement in the 1970s and 80s and even into today, but we won't go there at the moment. But anyway, the point being is that it looks as though these things are legitimate and spontaneous and they grow uh, as a part of you know, the progress in our, in our, um, uh, our civilization, uh, but it actually, there was a, a method behind all of it. So the ideological subversion is defined as the ability to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interest of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. So after one generation or two generations of students have been changed and their ideologies have been con uh, converted from those of the traditional uh, democracy, uh, they target the essential building blocks of the existing society. That is the economy, the foreign relations, the defense, property ownership and all of that. Because after the demoralization, these students have now assumed positions of power and influence in the society within government, civil service, business media, education, and we know what happened with certain, uh, what shall we say, political party uh, persons uh, in the various universities within New Zealand. Um, we know where they came from. We have photos of what they were like in their previous years. Now they're in government, civil service, business media, and education. Surprisingly, he said that at a certain point in time, a crisis uh, can actually take as little as six weeks to accomplish. Violent changes of power, structure, and economy. It may appear to be sudden, but actually preparation has taken decades. And finally, the stage of normalization, the drastic change, the takeover of a democratic society may be complete. Loss of freedoms, private control is assumed to be permanent, but I think we're going to question that. We're going to say, will it have to be that way? Or will we have enough strength? Will there be enough strength in our numbers 
to really mount the necessary uh, uh, bringing to justice of the various individuals across the world who have been involved in this process. A Nuremberg trial, version two. And I think a lot of us would like to see that. But there is hope, there's always hope because we have to remember, despite all of those who are opposed against us, all of those who uh, wish to do us uh, uh, ill, who wish to control us and make us the slaves, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, and must be kind to everyone, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged, and that is the most difficult part. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth, perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. So that's what I have for you tonight. And I thank you for listening and attending. Thank you, Peter. Uh, that was another really interesting webinar and thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, it's always fascinating to look back and just ponder on what's been before, I think, whether or not we can see it clearly yet or not, I think, um, or whether we will see it so clearly. It's always good to have a little look back into history, see what we can learn from them. Um, thank you, everybody. And thank you so much, Peter. I'm conscious of the time. We've had a nice long chat tonight. So we will see you again in two weeks time with something else new. And um, yeah, there were over there were two point something, 2.2, .2, I think, million, uh, million, wouldn't that be nice? 2.2 thousand <laughs> with us tonight. Uh, so it was a, good, a lovely turnout on a Sunday night. And I think next time we come, we'll be doing our Surfside chat because we're going to say summer's here, I think. So thank you, everybody. It was great to see you. Thanks, Peter. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everyone. Thank you all. See ya. Yep.